Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, uh, my name is Ian Rowe. I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors. I'm a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And welcome to our latest episode of The Invisible Men, where Nike and I have the incredible opportunity to speak to unbelievable men who you may not know, but are doing amazing things. And our goal is to make these men invisible no more. And today we have a great opportunity to sit with Vernon Lee, who is a managing director at the Marathon Fund, who's been doing some extraordinary things over the years. Welcome, Vernon. How are you? I'm wonderful. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Excellent. So, Vernon, tell us a little bit about what the Marathon Fund is, and then also just give us a little bit of your story. How is it that you got to be where you are? And I love that little, you got Howard in the frame, so that's got to be part of the story, too. Bison for life. Yeah, it's definitely part of the journey. Uh, no, I'm, again, I appreciate you guys having me on and thinking enough of me to fit within the, um, you know, high aspiration and some of the accomplishments of some of your other guests. So I don't take that lightly. But the Marathon Fund is an early stage fund, pre-seed, seed, pre-series A, focused specifically on underrepresented entrepreneurs. So we're, we're very deliberate and intentional about investing in uh, Black, Latino, disabled, LGBTQ, and veteran entrepreneurs. Our primary hunting ground is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia uh, region of Mid-Atlantic, but we'll be doing deals and with our you know, colleagues and peers in other regions, in Chicago, Atlanta, South Florida, the Bay Area, uh, L.A., and, and wherever there's some, some great founders that have an opportunity or deserving of opportunity, uh, particularly in the venture space, early stage, uh, for early stage funding. Check sizes will be in a sort of 250-ish range, but we are looking for high growth, uh, exceptional founders. You know, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, Nike side by side. So we're looking for cues that can, uh, you know, take a company and really, really grow it in a significant way. Uh, you hear a lot about sort of social impact. I mean, our perspective is, well, there's a social aspect to this. It's about returns. There's an opportunity for amazing founders that need that first check to come in. Uh, that would then, you know, move on to a Series A. So we want to be able to provide the coaching and mentoring in addition to the, the capital aspect. Uh, sure. Those founders that, uh, have that type of vision and an ability to execute. Uh, and then from there, creating a, an amount of wealth for their employees uh, and for that trickle-down opportunity. So that's how we look at it from a return standpoint. We will get that social impact uh, from that perspective. So the, the Milton Friedman... Uh philosophy where the social responsibility of business is to generate profit. Someone here is uh, definitely well read. <laughs> <laughs> so in your own life, have you had uh, the entrepreneurial bug? Like how, how is it that you are looking to sort of stimulate this in others? Was it birthed within you at some point? Yeah, so great question. So in your earlier question about sort of my path, so my first entrepreneurial type endeavor was a, being a paper boy. A buddy of mine had a paper route. Uh, he said, hey, let's you know split you know, some of the route and, and some money. Then I ended up getting some of my own little area. So that was sort of my first entrepreneurial type effort. Um, 
you know, middle school. But it, it really took place, and I was born and raised in Hampton, Virginia. But I always wanted to fly jets. So Langley Air Force Base Air Combat Command is located in Hampton. My grandfather was in the Air Force. I was just, it was just something I, at the time when I was nine years old, I always wanted to fly jets. But in high school, I ended up having um, to get glasses. And so I wouldn't even, I wasn't able to even compete for a pilot slot. Once I went to Air Force RTC and forget about even going to the Air Force Academy. Uh, so really for me, it came down to sort of Howard, UVA, North Carolina, and enough for decisions. I want, you know, I thought being in DC was would be an awesome opportunity from an exposure standpoint. Went to Howard, Air Force RTC. But while I was at Howard, one of my classmates used to throw some of the best parties in the entire city. Not just at Howard. I'm talking about the entire city. He was a freshman. I'm like, who is this guy? But everybody knew him. <clears throat> so he actually inspired me to want to be a party promoter back in Hampton after my, between my sophomore and junior year. So that, that classmate was Sean Puffy Combs. Oh, <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So we, we know. Well, well, I worked with many years ago, by the way, on the vote. Is that right? Really? During my MTV days. Yes. Yes. Oh, but so I, that's that, when I was cool. That's when I was cool. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but no, it was just interesting. That I'm like, man, this guy is doing some of the best parties. So I went home after the summer of my freshman year worked. It was, you know, you're sort of in this in-between. Again, this is some market analysis where you're not in high school no more, but you're not 21 and get in the club. So I saw market opportunities. So the next summer, uh, me and two of my cousins started promoting parties. We came, you know, we're, our company was at Grassroots Promotions. <laughs> and we rented out an old skating rink and we had tremendous success. Then we started doing uh, some mini concerts. We had Queen Latifah and Chubb Rock. Uh, one of my cousins went to Norfolk State. So so when I went back to Howard, I started doing parties at a place called Chapter 3 in D.C. So that was so this entrepreneurial effort started really kicked in uh, when I was at Howard. And I wasn't able to sustain it because I was on an Air Force RTC scholarship. So I owed four years to the U.S. Air Force. Uh, so I subsequently uh, went on active duty and was a was an officer, which was the best thing that um, I really enjoyed the opportunity that I had as an Air Force officer. Wow. There's, there's a study that just came out well, maybe about a year ago at this point, and it studied the success of black men in America. And it really, because most people, when you're speaking about black men, you're, you normally talk about prison reform and, you know, non-marital birth rates, but there's a surprisingly high number of black men that have been successful. And this study tried to sort of isolate what were the factors that led these men to be successful. And generally, the factors were they had followed something called the success sequence, which is that they finished their education, full-time work, marriage, then children. But there were also two other elements. There's often a military component mm. um, and a faith commitment, which I've, I've, I've always found that very fascinating. Sounds like- That is, that is very fascinating. Um... Because I pretty much hit all, of, <laughs> I hit all of those factors. Uh, you know, you know, growing up in Virginia, I mean, faith was very important. Uh, my family, I mean, it was, you know, Southern Baptist. You, you know, we're in church like all day on Sunday. It was not, <laughs> it was not exactly fun, but it was, <laughs> it was, you know, what was expected. Um, it's what was expected. Hear that? 
Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, this is, you know, this is what you, you will do this. It really wasn't um, much of an option. And, and so that's interesting about the faith and military. I mean, I just come from a, a military family, so I was always exposed to it. Um, my mother was a captain, army captain. Oh, wow. So you can imagine a black woman uh, uh, during those times uh, in the army, but I had an uncle who was in the Navy. My other grandfather was in the army for a couple of years. So I, I've wow. sort of always been exposed to that. Um, the other thing that is essentially you talk about sort of these success factors I, again for me it's just weird when I was nine years old I just had this vision that you know again I wanted to fly jets I was going to get into politics for some reason I was always going to be, uh, be a business owner like I can't I honestly can't explain why at that age these things came to me and it was just very clear I mean I, mean, I, I say God had to have and playing at something like I just always I actually never doubted whether I was going to be successful which is I know sounds strange but um, but I didn't act, I didn't achieve academically in high school because and this is particularly I think for the audience and I, and I try to share this with a lot of young men especially but I was embarrassed that I spoke so intelligently I was teased for using big words um, I was in advanced classes, you know, it was, it was usually me and maybe one other brother or one other sister and, you know, everybody else was, was white in those classes. But, you know, I was on a football team. I wrestled. But none of my boys were, none of the, none of the fellas were, were in those classes. So it was, so I underachieved academically in high school. How did you balance that? Um, my, my, my mother, thank God for mothers, um, my family's expectation of me was was high, uh, even though I wasn't necessarily meeting those expectations. Uh, and it actually got to a point, uh, my mother and father uh, divorced when I was eight. And my father was around, but ultimately it got to a point in high school, my mother was like, you need to you have to go see with your father. And so his expectation, like it was like, oh, I got to really step this thing up. Um, but still, I, I still un, I underachieved in high school. I, did, I, I understood the content, but I only did just enough to get by uh, and, and was lazy in some aspects. But and the reason I tell us, and I tell it because I do a lot of mentoring as well, is I don't want other black boys to be embarrassed about being intelligent and speaking whatever their truths are. And that was something that, uh, you know, I could have easily ended up in a whole different path uh, with, you know, some of the fellas I was hanging uh, I would say football also was very important for me. At the high school that I went to, you know, we were nationally ranked, very competitive, multiple state championships. <clears throat> so I've always chased excellence. I always wanted to, I've always had a hunger for what excellence looks like. It feels like, and I, I felt being exposed to that level of hard work and dedication by the entire year to achieve a goal and then achieving that. Was one of the, and I tell I'm still friends with some of my high school my high school football coaches, but I tell them I thank them for because it was hard. I mean, it was very very difficult as you can imagine. Uh, but I learned, but learning teamwork and dedicating yourself to a goal was something that really was significant for me. You know, Vern, one of the things you said about not wanting to sound wide and use big words and not be too successful academically. A, a book I'm reading now. 
which is titled Black Rednecks and White Liberals, one of the fundamental themes of the book is that those cultural sensibilities of being cool, uh, you know, a heavy focus on respect, maybe quick to violence, maybe some lax uh, sexual norms, which we equate with urban America. In fact, those things come from the Scottish Highlands and Northern Britain. And the point is that those behaviors were actually brought over to the South specifically and were white Southern behaviors that we adopted during our enslavement. That this idea of sort of black culture is in fact from Scotland, which was incredibly underdeveloped in Northern and Western Britain. In fact, in the book, they detail that Ebonics, and we always hear about Ebonics and it's important to give our children, it comes from there. It has nothing to do with Africa. And so a big chunk of the book just talks about when you could separate uh, us from that culture, we performed historically and present day so much better. But I just, you know, the thing that really opened my eyes is that we, we, we view this culture as ours. And in fact, it's the farthest thing from being ours. That's interesting. I, I've definitely got to read that book. I mean, uh, one of the things, Vernon, that your, your, your focus on entrepreneurship and in, in your own life and now helping to stimulate others, it is an exciting time, it seems. I've heard about Harlem Capital, which you might be familiar with, which is a new uh, enterprise started by two black Harvard Business School alum who have made the commitment to, I think, recruit a thousand new business leaders, uh, minority and women leaders. I just saw that uh, Magic Johnson is committing $100 million to invest in small businesses. Netflix is allocating $100 million of its capital and transferring that to Black-owned financial institutions. So it seems like there are a lot more opportunities from an entrepreneurship perspective that are being created for more Black-owned businesses. How do we get more of the pipeline? Or is the pipeline already there? And this new capital is just finally catching up or, or do we need to do more work to cultivate more of this, this idea of small business expansion and creation in our community? I, I, I love the way you framed that. So there is amazing talent that already exists. There are some amazing businesses and, and oftentimes we need to differentiate between not all small businesses require capital. I mean, like a huge amount of capital. So let's, let's separate sort of that group. But there are those that are a little bit more capital intensive and require a little bit more runway to be able to execute on a minimum viable product, make sure you got the uh, proper uh, product fit. So I think it's a great, I mean, there's amazing talent right now. And I think there's some really fundable companies now. I think we need to keep pushing the pipeline there's still, I mean, there's a lot of accelerate. I mean, we talk about the capital commitments here, but there's some amazing incubators and accelerators that are out there. But we need more of, of that. Whatever the mechanism for the entrepreneurship development and training, we need more of that because there are different type of entrepreneurs. Again, they're small business owners. And they're not entrepreneurs that what I'm describing is scale. They can really scale up. <clears throat> now, the biggest challenge that we have, when I say we, meaning 
black entrepreneurs uh, in particular is that black entrepreneurs need an opportunity to fail. And that doesn't exist systematically. If a black entrepreneur fails, I mean, it's very likely they won't get another shot and opportunity. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, white entrepreneurs fail and can get back. They learn so much from their their initial their initial. Uh, yeah, exactly. They, they learn learning opportunity. Oh, wow. You know, you know, they brought through millions of dollars, <laughs> but you know, they were able to build something that they could extract. And again, it is what it is. I mean, there's, there's no dispute in this. And so, again, I, I don't want to. I'm not suggesting that. Hey, you know, black entrepreneurs are going to fit, but the re- that's the reality. The numbers and statistics just show it is very hard to to build a business. So we need to have opportunities to fail uh, and then come back and be even better the second time around with whatever that new product or whatever that solution that's um, that's uh, being proposed or the problem is that's being solved by the entrepreneur. Vern, we have a we have a section of the podcast that we call the speed round. We we throw out. Uh, individuals or philosophies or um, functions, and we ask you to kind of pick one and give us the reason why. So we'll start with one that's consistent with what we just were discussing. Corporate corporate executive or entrepreneur? Oh, entrepreneur. Uh, and again, amazing respect for on the corporate side. I think that's needed. Uh, but in terms of growing job creation, wealth creation, uh, entrepreneurship for me. One more softball, then, given given where I think you're coming from. Civil rights or economic development? Oh, economic development. <laughs> and so, and, you know, some will argue that economic development is part of civil rights. I, I think I think there's some legislative things and rights that need to happen from a civil perspective. But pure economic development uh, and capital infusion, uh, I'm all economic development. And then, of course, we've got to ask you, Martin or Malcolm? Malcolm. I, I just, yeah, amazing respect for Martin. I think they were both needed. I think very effective in their own ways. But Malcolm, I mean, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was at Howard, it it just changed my life. And the reason uh, I mentioned uh, our our promotion company, my two cousins, Grassroots P- Productions, it was named after the Grassroots Speech by Malcolm X. And if you <laughs> heard that speech, the grassroots speech by Malcolm is just, um, again, so I'm Malcolm easily. So I have to tell you, you're our first guest to pick Malcolm, and I love it. So, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was not even close for me. <laughs> and the, the, the last one is Jay-Z or Kanye? Oh, this Jay-Z, that's not even... <laughs> Although I guess some people are a little... Might have some questions, some decisions, Jay Z, but no, Jay, uh, just in terms of as an artist, Jay Z, and some of the entrepreneurial things that Jay Z yeah. has done is that's the easy one for me. I love your focus on economic development. I mean, there's a lot of discussion right now about the the racial wealth gap in the United States that the average black family only has about one tenth the net worth of the average uh, white family, if you only look at race, I mean, if you start to look at um, education, family structure, those gaps go away. But there's a raging debate right now. And even with a new administration coming in, there are people who are theorizing that the gap in uh, wealth is so big between blacks and whites that there's, quote, nothing a black person can do individually 
to close that gap. And so therefore reparations is the only answer. And I'm just curious what your response is because there are a lot of folks that think that, um, you know, reparations is, that's the way that, that, that's the only way in which black people can become economically successful in the United States. First of all, I'm all for reparations, period. Like, let me quickly say that how it gets formed and determined and all that, you know, I, I don't have a position on that per se. I don't think it's the only way, but uh, again, just looking at the facts, after slavery, we were getting, you know, we were given nothing to start, right? So, so former slave owners are actually given reparations because this resource they no longer had. So they were actually given reparations, whereas those individuals had nothing to start. So from the very beginning, I mean, again, we're a couple hundred years into this significant marathon and the lack of investment that has taken place in uh, for African-American, whether you're entrepreneur or otherwise, uh, in the training that would normally go, I mean, has not existed. And, you know, we know very much uh, housing discrimination and the wealth the lack of wealth creation from home ownership. I mean, these things are all documented with redlining and so on and so forth. So it's like this combination of systematic lack of economic, economic opportunity investment uh, in the descendant of slaves has been, you know, it's, it's a tragedy. And, uh, but how do we fix it? I think yeah, reparations. I think that's the question. I think that's the question, right? Yeah. So the, the repara reparations, absolutely. Uh, when you think about, and again, putting some things in context, I know we're in a global pandemic and there were some decisions that need to be made, but it's amazing how, you know, two, three trillion dollars can be created within a couple of weeks because now you're investing in an economic, you're, you're investing in a, a level of economics to try and stabilize the economy. Whereas I look at the fact that if you look at reparations and you invest in these, uh, the number of individuals, whether that's through education, whether that's through capital, there's an opportunity now to build from that, which means more ties can rise. So, you know, whatever the debate is around reparations and and, and those things, is, I mean, I think it, it needs to happen. I think whatever the commission, I guess, is being considered, I mean, I think that should have a high level of priority. But I think at the same time, the commitment by some of the corporate entities that you mentioned, uh, Netflix, PayPal's committed half a million, SoftBank's committed a hundred Million. I mean, the list goes on and on. Citibank's committed a billion. And actually, City, <clears throat> City's done, had did a really unique study around if X amount of capital had been provided to uh, Black entrepreneurs, it would have increased like the economy like a trillion dollars. Like there was a mm -hmm. definite correlation that's associated with that. Yeah, so at least on a corporate similar, Yeah. So I think the cap, the commitments on the corporate side also, um, from the private sector, I think also is, is very, is also going to be a uh, key to that as well. And what do you think of, because um, you know, one of the concerns with, you know, and, and, we, and we're going to want you to give advice to our young man, Daryl, our 16-year-old black kid from, a, you know, from Forgotten USA. What's the message to Daryl, though, in terms of the factors he can control around how he's going to generate economic wealth in his own lifetime? What's the best advice to him to make that happen? Is it waiting for reparation? Is it, you know, hoping that a government program like that will come through? Or is it something more that he has influence over his destiny? Well, 
Daryl and all of the Daryls that are out there in communities that uh, have failed them and are areas that are struggling, you should know first and foremost that you're not alone, that there are, we're here, there's other men um, and women that want to support you. So no matter what your circumstances are and some of the lonely nights and times, you know, debating on whether to stay in school or not, uh, you're not alone. There are opportunities for you to create wealth. The education aspect is absolutely paramount. So no matter what those challenges, no matter what those distractions are, get your education because that will be your path. As you're doing that and pursuing that, we're now in a sort of renaissance type area or, or period in which entrepreneurship can come from many facets. So whether you're in high school or, or college, don't allow your, don't be bound by any sort of mental block on whether you want if it's something you can achieve. There's an amazing number of resources and mentorship opportunities. So talk to your teachers and deacons at your church or whatever religious affiliation, but seek out those individuals who certainly want to help and, and be a mentor. Because um, the more coaches and mentors you have, which made a huge difference in my life, there are people that really, really want to help and guide you so that you can minimize any mistakes and uh, bad decisions that you make in your life. Wow. Well, Vernon, thank you very much. I know Daryl and all the Daryls of the world would love to follow your model. And and uh, I find it fascinating that it was Puffy Combs who provided your, you know, your initial inspiration that sparked your entrepreneurial um, flame. And so that's what we're trying to do with this Invisible Men series is to, who knows what it's going to be to catalyze some young listener to say, you know what? I could do that too. I can build a business. I can raise capital. I can become an entrepreneur. So thank you for being a great model. And thank you all for listening to this latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe. Brent, thanks so much. That was, that was wonderful and appreciate you giving us the time. Absolutely. It was so great to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 